data infrastructure has been transformed over the last 15 years. The open source Hadoop project led to the creation of multiple companies based around commercializing the MapReduce algorithm and the Google file system, both of which came out of Google as papers, and then cheap cloud storage popularized the usage of data lakes. Cheap cloud servers led to wide experimentation of data tools. Apache Spark emerged from academia, and Apache Kafka came out of the corporate challenges faced by LinkedIn. Over these 15 years, Ben Lorica has been following the world of data engineering as an engineer, a conference organizer, and a podcaster. When he was host of the O'Reilly Data Show, his material served as inspiration for some of the episodes of this podcast. And today he hosts the Data Exchange podcast and writes the Data Exchange newsletter. Ben joins the show to talk about modern data engineering and his opinion on the past and future of data infrastructure. If you enjoyed today's show, you can find all of our past episodes about data infrastructure by going to softwaredaily.com and searching for the technologies or the companies that are mentioned. And we also have mobile apps that you can use to find all of our past episodes, all 1,500 of them. And if there's a subject that you want to hear covered, you can feel free to leave a comment on the episode or send us a tweet at software underscore daily. Ben Lorca, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Glad to be here. You are working on a number of different things that we're going to explore. And the first one I want to talk about is Anyscale, which is a company that recently came out of Stealth. And Anyscale works on technology associated with the Ray project. What are the problems in distributed computing that Ray is solving that were previously unsolved? Broadly speaking, the two main constituencies that Ray can appeal to are machine learning people. So this could be data scientists or machine learning engineers who are probably doing training and related activities around machine learning and uh, Python programmers. So in both cases, I guess a common thing there is Python because for, uh, as you know, ML and data science uh, is uh, mostly dominated by Python, right? So most of the libraries make sure they appeal to Python users and so forth. And so any scale for both communities, the goal is to provide tools that will let you scale and run your code fast. In pretty much almost the same code will run on your laptop as on a cluster. And so if you want to scale machine learning or you want to scale Python in the future, that will probably happen using Ray and the Ray ecosystem which is now comprised of a few libraries, as you know. So there's a library for reinforcement learning and hyperparameter tuning. I think in the next few months, we'll see libraries for model serving, distributed training. So basically, scalable ML and scalable Python, which actually I, I'm uh, the co-organizer of the first Ray Summit, which will take place in San Francisco, May 28 and 29. And we thought a lot about the tagline for the conference, and it's exactly what I just described. Scalable machine learning, scalable Python for everyone. What's unscalable about machine learning pre-Ray? Oh, I think that uh, so for people who want to run machine learning, let's say, on a lot of data, you might be able to scale it on one machine, but increasingly the future 
of ML seems increasingly distributed. As you know, the model sizes keep getting bigger and bigger and the training times get longer and longer. And so a lot of that is happening in a cluster. And so with Ray, the opportunity there is that you have code that you've already written for a snapshot of your data, a small copy of your data, and you can point that same code and it'll run in distributed in parallel in a cluster, almost unchanged. Was Ray inspired specifically by the problems in reinforcement learning? I think originally, yeah. Uh, so Ray came out of, I think, a graduate seminar that Ion Stoika, who's executive chairman of AnyScale and Databricks, uh, taught in Berkeley. And uh, I think at the time they were trying to do, I believe, distributed deep learning on Spark. What two students, uh, Ray and Philip, who are now the co-founders of Ray, along with Ion and Mike Jordan. So Robert and Philip tried to do distributed training, deep learning on Spark, and they got it to work, but they realized, oh, there's a opportunity here for doing this. And then I think they're co-advised by Mike Jordan, so they're machine learning people. And uh, they were also at that time interested in reinforcement learning. And so the original target for Ray was primarily reinforcement learning. And why wasn't the Spark ecosystem sufficient to perform the scalable machine learning tasks? The computation p patterns for training is one thing, but also I think Ray is uh, is written in C++, so built for scale, built for speed. And originally that was, uh, you know, particularly for reinforcement learning when you need that low latency because you're, you're doing all these simulations. That worked out well. And I think now uh, if you were to do uh, distributed training for deep learning, you, you have roughly three options. I think TensorFlow has some tools, which even Rajat Monga, if people will listen to my uh, interview with him on my podcast, uh, will admit it's a bit hard harder to use. Mm. And then there's some tools in the open source, one from Uber called Horvod, and then one from ByteDance called BytePS. And then now AnyScale is hopefully and shortly will be able to step in and, and make distributed training for both the TensorFlow and PyTorch uh, much easier. You've been involved in the Spark ecosystem for more than six years. You've been an advisor to Databricks. The Spark programming model allowed for distributed in-memory working set for performing multiple computations, and this was an improvement on the single batch run model of Hadoop. When you reflect on those six years spent in the Spark ecosystem, what were the use cases that Spark has made easier to solve? How has Spark changed data infrastructure? So I think the incumbent was MapReduce. And so at least early on, I mean, uh, I don't think this was true when, when Spark really began to take off. You literally had to write MapReduce, right? So there weren't any easy ways to do the data wrangling. I, I, shortly after they there had... There was Hive and Pig, pig and whatever, Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So the, shortly after there was Hive and Pig. But then uh, I think the attraction for Spark was the speed in Scala. And then the unification of the different uh, tasks that you wanted, right? So, because uh, 
I remember being at this San Francisco meetup when Spark Streaming was announced and people were just blown away. Huh? I can basically use the same engine to do batch and streaming and the code almost looks the same. And then and then they introduce other things, Spark SQL, right? And then at least uh, in those days, before deep learning, in, for traditional machine learning, Spark also had a machine learning library that uh, people were using alongside other options. And I think uh, that has played out to today. I mean, if you look at any data engineering job posting, any company using uh, doing any sort of data engineering, chances are they're using Spark in some form in their infrastructure. How has Spark changed the process of interactive data science? I think it raised expectations in terms of being able to get answers in a timely fashion, ease of use, because PySpark, right? So made Spark available to Python users. That means Python people could do data processing at scale. And then just more and more companies started building on top of Spark, including open source projects. But I, I do remember when I first started using Spark, it was mostly around the fact that it was fast, right? So compared to using MapReduce. And the other things on top of MapReduce still, the execution engine was MapReduce, right? So be it Pig or Hive. And so then uh, the fact that you could do your data processing and also start doing some machine learning using the same tool was attractive. So I think unification is also a big part of what Spark has changed. Both Spark and Ray came from the Rise Lab or from its previous incarnations. Uh, You also have Mesos and uh, Aluxio that have come out of this lab. Has the Rise Lab given us a clear roadmap for how to take a research project to market? Or is, is there anything generalizable that we can take about the process of going from building a computer science system in an academic environment and taking it to market? Is there anything generalizable we can take away from the RISE lab? I guess if it were generalizable, you would see it in many other places, right? <laughs> Clearly. So I think you it see is, it in almost no other place, right? I think it has to do with their tradition of, uh, so, uh, you know, that Dave Patterson has introduced and now carried forth by uh, people like Eon. But basically, the few elements there, one, they have a fixed time frame, right? So whatever it is, six, seven years. And then they reboot, challenge themselves to reboot and, and start over. Secondly, they're very interdisciplinary, which, you know, I mean, other computer science departments probably say, well, we have professors uh, that work across different areas of computer science as well. But then they also have this mindset that they want to build for uh, tools that industry will use. So these labs usually have industry sponsors and they have close working relationship with the lab. Some of them even send people to uh, collaborate with the lab lab for a short period of time, but they have uh, close communication. So a lot of the tools get used by the sponsors early on, right? So look at the Ray is already in production in a bunch of places, including AdFinance, which relied heavily on Ray for 11.11, which is the largest shopping day in the world, right? So so the sponsors 
give them feedback. I mean, this is a very formalized process. They have retreats twice a year and they present the projects, status, the incremental updates to the project, as well as kind of the more long shot projects that they're working on. So, and then the sponsors will give them formal updates at the end of the retreat, so mm-hmm. twice a year. So if you get this constant feedback, you have people from multiple areas of computer science because uh, a lot of these problems require uh, people from many areas. And then the mindset that we're building for uh, tools that we want to build tools that people can use. You've spent a lot of time talking to big companies, Twitter, Uber, Netflix. You did a lot of work organizing conferences where you would vet the talks and vet the developments that are going on at these companies, they're often building internal machine learning frameworks, data pipeline tools. Why do all these companies like Twitter and Uber and Netflix, why do they end up inventing similar systems at the same time? Like you see Netflix has a streaming system at the same time that Twitter has a new streaming system. Uber has a new machine learning framework at the same time that Netflix has a new machine learning framework. Why do these things happen simultaneously? The two main reasons. One, I mean, arguably, when they build these things, in some cases at least, uh, these tools that they need might be very specific to their infrastructure or their needs, and they may not exist. And there might be requirements around privacy and security where uh, they're not comfortable using external tools. So the first main reason is they have very specific needs and the tools just don't exist and uh, if they do exist maybe it doesn't adhere to their requirements maybe they prefer to use open source tools i don't know right so and then i guess the the other reason is if you have a company and that's in the tech space and you want to retain your engineers you've got to give them interesting projects to work on on, right and so I think that will be the case for a while until, let's say, so a lot of these companies are trying to build these end-to-end ML platforms. At some point, uh, those platforms like Databricks will be enough for these companies. If not now, for most cases, they're probably enough. But then you have these pool of engineers and they need to work on interesting projects. Otherwise, they'll move to other places, right? So there's some of that going on too as well. I think, I mean, I think if there's areas where uh, that are core to your business that you can definitely point your engineers to, but there might be areas where the tools are good enough. Because it's one thing, as you know, Jeff, it's one thing to build a tool but then you have to maintain, add features, and you know what was exciting before is now oh, kind yes. of a drudgery kind of thing, <laughs> oh, right? Yes. So there's an advantage of getting a tool from a vendor that specializes in that problem. Totally. Right, so, so for example, actually one of the companies that I advise is a company called Anadot, which is uh, doing machine learning for time series, which includes, so the big areas there are anom- anomaly detection and forecasting. Well, I mean, you can you can build that too because that's an exciting project, right? So, but over time, you have to maintain that thing, all the feeds, the algorithms have to be up to date, and and so on and so forth. And then you have to scale it. 
In the meantime, maybe you should be working on the core business problem that you have to tackle, be it whatever it is, logistics, uh, right. me media, or right. whatever, right? And I think at some point, maybe the shareholders will also probably well, uh, will probably also say, well, well, why are you guys spending all this money building tools that you can just get, right? So. You see the same phenomenon in basic runtime infrastructure, like in the time before Kubernetes won the container orchestration wars, every company was building something for container orchestration. And in retrospect, there was a lot of blood that was shed as people were creating these different internal container management systems that they then had to tear out and replace with Kubernetes eventually. And you know, I don't have any perspective because I'm I don't work at any of these companies. But in retrospect, it looks like most companies probably would have been happier if they would have just focused on business logic, ignore your platform issues, stay on VMs, whatever, until one of these open source container things wins, and then just adopt the one that wins. But then the question is, would your engineers be happy doing that? I mean, your goal is to build a business, not to make your engineers happy, right? True, but uh, I mean, I guess in an environment where engineers are in demand. <laughs> but you, why do you want the engineers that you're hiring just to make happy building no, no, some I'm just, platform I, solution I'm that you don't saying, actually need? I'm just saying uh, there's some of this happening, right? Because basically IT infrastructure is com complex, complex enough that management may not precisely know what's practical to build and what's impractical. Right. To maintain over a long period. So I'm just speculating. Sure. I, think, I think there's some of this going on to this day, right? So, Sure. I guess what I'm suggesting is, as there are more and more companies building infrastructure solutions, whether we're talking about for container management or machine learning or data pipeline stuff, I think the answer becomes more and more buy, do not build. Well, never, I mean, ever build. As just you, buy. Yeah, as you point out in the Kubernetes container orchestration, that's happening now, right? So, yeah. But uh, I think in machine learning, it's slowly happening, right? So I think it's happening in enterprise. It's just that uh, we live in a bubble here, man. Right. So we're, we're always talking to people at these companies, and they're all building their own stuff. <laughs> right. right? So, fair yeah. enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. The self-driving car companies, you got to imagine they're solving some of the hardest problems around machine learning. Do you have any sense for what kind of infrastructure is being built at the self-driving car companies or is that all mysterious? I'm not, I don't have a good feel. I do know they're hiring some of the people that we know that came from the big data world, right? Which makes me believe that they're building kind of similar streaming end-to-end -end ML infrastructure. And maybe some of that, their needs are so specific, their data types are, are different enough, whatever they are, images, video, LIDAR, and geographic data, that maybe there's no off-the-shelf solution. I do know that uh, a good friend of mine who's an investor has long observed that there's an opportunity for someone to provide infrastructure for these companies. Because, I mean, in, in, in the sense that... Uh, the infrastructure is so specific, so you build kind of a infrastructure company around uh, around this transportation industry. Yeah, I mean, how many customers do you have though? Like, are there are there enough self driving companies that would want to buy this stuff? Uh, potentially, if 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 your infrastructure becomes kind of 
dominant in the transportation industry. I mean, it's a big industry, right? So, I mean, look at how many people are building this kind of solution for ad tech. Well, that's true. Right. So. I mean, but there's a lot more ad tech companies. Like the barrier to entry for an ad tech company is a little, little lower than... Yeah, like, that's what I'm saying is that if your infrastructure is so good and so specific to this uh, domain, it, there might be a company there. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean... We're just used to all this uh, super high valuation companies, but uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunities there for verticalized solutions, right? Mm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you saw that company Scale API that, that does oh, yeah. data labeling yeah, yeah. as an API, yeah, but yeah. they really found a lot of traction by selling to the self-driving car companies because right. they needed so much data labeling. Right. I've got a list of data infrastructure products that... I want to get your perspective for how each of these fit into modern data infrastructure, or you can just say pass on any of them. Okay. So let's go through them. Amazon Redshift. I hear a lot about them, you know, so I, I think they, they've they made a lot of progress in terms of building out uh, that product, but uh, beyond that, pass. <laughs> okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Apache Arrow. Apache Arrow, I think Wes McKinney, who you probably know, has really done a good job of, of pushing forward with that project. I think it's one of these projects that the outside world don't hear a lot about, but a lot of engineers are, uh, are really happy with that project. Are data science workflows mostly in Python or in Java these days? Whew. Well, most data scientists are Python people. But the question is, uh, do uh, and this is driven by the Apache Arrow, just because the it's I think it's this data interchange thing that allows you to share data between a Python runtime and a Java runtime. So I think it's like the idea is you can switch between those two runtimes and use the same data format. Yeah, I, I would suspect that most since most data scientists and machine learning people are Python first. At least in the prototyping phase, it's Python. I don't know what... Depends on the company, mm. how they productionize, right? Mm. So, Is anyone doing data science in JavaScript? Data science in JavaScript. I mean, there's uh, machine learning in JavaScript, but I, I don't know many people who are. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Google BigQuery. Good product. I mean, uh, I think that uh, of the cloud products in that category, that's the one that I hear the most raving reviews about. It, and what is that category? Is it like unified data warehouse and data lake? Is that the idea? So I'm about to uh, publish a post with the founders of Databricks around this topic. Basically, the idea here is that, uh, and we'll have a term for it. I, I don't want to reveal the term is for it. Is it Delta? So Delta is a manifestation in the open source. But basically, the idea here is in the old days... Most companies probably when they talk about data was for ML was mostly structured data, right? So for ML and analytics. So that was, uh, you know, so you had data warehouses basically. And then you had the need to collect more data variety and velocity. So then you had Delta Lakes. But then the Delta Lake suffered from poor data quality because basically people just put data into the data lake, right? And so now I think what we're seeing is a new generation of tools which combine some of the features of those two and probably add some more. But basically the main thing is that uh, 
you separate compute from storage, you're able to support more data types, not just structured, but semi-structured and unstructured, including video images, audio, right? And then you can support more diverse workloads, not just SQL. So you can use Spark if you want to do something more complicated, or you can use Python. You can point your favorite machine learning library. And most importantly, you support transactions, right? So ACID. So because in, in most companies, you'll have people working on data pipelines and touching data maybe concurrently. So you want to be able to make sure that uh, you can reason about data integrity. So those are some of the core features, but basically that this new data management paradigm then would allow you to both data warehousing, data science, machine learning, analytics from the same source. You don't ha- need to move data around, right? Because in, mm-hmm. in the data lake model, because the data quality was not that good, and uh, you would have to basically uh, pull data out of there, create a data warehouse, and do analytics. And uh, that was a complicated process for most companies. Right. So that process was everybody dumps their data, ex- yeah, storage, exhaust data. Storage, storage is cheap, right? So. Storage is cheap. You just throw it throw it on disk in a, in a data lake. Use S3 or HDFS in a data lake. And then... So Google fits into this category somewhat, but it, uh, Google BigQuery fits into this category somewhat, but uh, it's optimized for SQL kind of workloads, right? I think uh, the Databricks platform is an example where you can you have all of the features I listed out, so you can do BI to AI, right? So, and then the open soil, open source file formats that you mentioned, Delta Lake, which is Delta.io, Apache mm-hmm. Iceberg, mm-hmm. and Apache Hoodie can can be the basis of of this new data management paradigm. But you'd have to build out all of the other features I listed out. Why is the file format relevant? Oh, so no, no. So these uh, these file formats uh, were introduced so that you can uh, you can do some of the things I described. In the case of Delta Lake, for example, you can do transactions, right? So mm. Mm. the problem of data quality doesn't that have to do more with the operator rather than the infrastructure that you're providing to the operator? No, but your data probably at ingest is not going to be ready for ML. So. Uh, Michael Armbrust of Databricks has this uh, good uh, metaphor, right? So he has the bronze data set, silver, and then gold. So each step you're doing some refinement, but you might still be in this exactly the same data management system. You don't have to pull it out of a data lake, right? If your data management system has this capability that you can uh, do the processing in place, then you don't have to uh, maintain two systems and pay for additional storage. This is not exactly a data infrastructure product, but Kubernetes. Has Kubernetes affected data engineering? Probably every data engineer is asked for this skill set now, right? So in terms of uh, most jobs that uh, are out there, I would imagine, at this point in time, or at least if not yet, probably soon, right? So they'll be part of the data engineering interview process to some extent. Why? I mean, why does a data why does a data engineer need to know about Kubernetes? Well, I mean, I think I don't think they need to know it in the level of detail as a, the DevOps person, but probably some knowledge of it because a lot of a lot of the infrastructure relies on it. Mm-hmm. Like for deploying machine learning models, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. 
Another tool that is not exactly a data infrastructure product, but I don't know if you've heard much about data science or data engineering people using it, GraphQL. GraphQL. I've heard I've heard it come up a few times, but uh, sounds like a pass. Yeah, it's a pass for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The problem of data discovery within a large company. Explain yeah. what data discovery is. So I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, if you work in a large company, chances are there are many different data systems, or even if there's this unified system I uh, I described earlier, you may not know what data is is useful and relevant to your peers, even right. So so that's why we need uh, systems that allow you to basically even uh, navigate your data repository to show what's available, but also maybe even understand what people are using most and also be able to share, right? So that's why these feature stores are so popular these days, right? So Because data scientists, data engineers, and ML engineers may spend a lot of time discovering the right feature for some machine learning model that they built, and they want to be able to publish and share it with their peers because... If you spent like a week figuring out what the right features are for your fraud model, maybe I can find some of those features useful for my other model, right? Mm. So, yeah. Have you seen any data catalog products that have stood out to you? There's a bunch. I mean, so Alation is a pretty good product. And I guess a lot of them give you the ability to understand what people are actually using. Right. right. So, so uh, the data sets throughout a company. That yeah, yeah. Alation, O'Hara are the ones that come to mind. There's another one that uh, I forget the name, but uh, but also uh, focuses on data privacy. So mm-hmm. data catalogs and data privacy. Yeah. I was listening to an episode you did recently with someone from Rakuten, and. The guest you had on talked about the fact that they outsource the early steps in the data engineering process. So if there's some project that they want to do at Rakuten and involves data cleaning, the data discovery and the data cleaning part, they actually outsource to contractors. And then once the data is... Did I mishear that? No, no, no. So they have a position called data wrangler. Data Wrangler. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. so, so it's so, not outsourced. So it's data, specific. Yeah, so so let's just say so f- at a high level, they have three major positions, right? So there's the data wrangler, data scientists, and then data engineer, ML engineer. So the data wrangler does a lot of the data prep, freeing up the time of the data scientist. So then the data scientist may build a model, and then the data wrangler steps back into the project and does kind of the model testing, model validation. From their perspective, and actually I've, it's quite actually clever, and I, I think other companies should think of adopting this, is that uh, it frees up some of the time of the data scientists, but also gives a career path for this other role. So, Because this right. other role over time gets mentored by the data scientist and might become a data scientist. Right. And in fact, in the, that episode, he said that uh, they had just promoted some data wranglers into data scientists where he actually went into travel to where they were located to, to tell them in person, right? So it's a big deal. So data wrangler does not need to be that technical. In the beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not familiar with ML, right? So. Hmm. And then they, they can train them in-house, and then, uh, and then that allows them to grow their team and then provide this career path. There are 
a number of approaches to building data infrastructure for doing machine learning. There are some enterprises that adopt a collection of data infrastructure tools like Kafka, Hadoop, Spark, whatever. Stitch your own. Stitch Stitch your own. And then there's these end-to-end machine learning platforms. Like you can buy a large end-to-end machine learning platform from certain providers. How would you contrast these two approaches? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on your priorities, right? So, I mean, and also, who who are the big end-to-end machine learning platforms? I mean, so the cloud providers probably will say they are, and then Databricks. Yeah, and so I guess it really so stitching your own. I mean, if you have multiple open source projects, it's not going to be uh, easy for a regular enterprise, right? I mean, because they just one of those systems, Kafka, just being good at using it and operating it, administering it, as opposed to buying an end-to-end platform where you can just focus on solving problems for your business units. And then, you know, I mean, that's just Kafka. And then you've got Spark. you got to um, tune all of these things. And I think over time, uh, most... I mean, I don't know if we'll ever... Jeff will ever get to the point where the tech companies will... We'll go to vendors because, like I said, they may be cutting edge. And also, it's just not the way these startups evolve, right? So, Because when you're a startup, you go, okay, so we need to do this. Well, there's these open source projects there, you know, so they try to stitch their own. And then before you know it, I guess they can move to Databricks, right? So, I mean, if you were a startup and you wanted to move fast and you know you needed to do ML, it seems that seems to make sense. And then focus, exactly. on, focus on your business problem right exactly but that's not uh, the, no, nor- the normal route for the startup is not that because there's usually a technical founder <laughs> it's going to become the norm though. i mean you look at netflix right netflix moved to the cloud it was massive success at first it looked crazy you know yeah. for when the, when they first moved to the cloud people thought they were crazy but then they realized oh it doesn't make any sense for netflix to be in the data center business over time it's going to look ridiculous for a lot of these companies to be in the open source infrastructure business. Yeah, so that's the tech world, right? So regular enterprise stitching together these things. <laughs> right. Very few of them will do that, right? So there's a few companies that probably you hear a lot about that try to experiment and do a lot of things on their own, you know, like Capital One and 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 uh, Two Sigma to some extent. But I don't know if you can name 10 of those companies, right? right? So, yeah. And... Uh, I mean, you can just see also from the growth of Databricks how uh, how much this type of solution resonates with enterprise who cannot afford to hire armies and armies of engineers to build and maintain infrastructure. Mm. Right? So, and by the way, uh, for your listeners, I should disclose that I am now spending 50% of my time at Databricks. Right. And the remainder of my time, I spend some of it at any scale and other uh, side projects where I help friends, but also I have a, a now, I guess, weekly podcast. Yeah. You can find it at uh, dataexchange.media. Why, by the way, do you like to be involved in so many different things? Why not just focus on one specific thing? Oh, I think that uh, it's, uh, I, I just want to be able to see a wide variety of problems across many different stages of maturity of the company. But also, I mean, as you know, I mean, I, I spent over 10 years at O'Reilly and I left in uh, November last year. And so 
and there I chaired the eight large conferences. So I've always kind of had a broad perspective. I want to be able to see if I can maintain that as much as possible. Definitely. I can certainly relate. We talked a little bit about interactive data science earlier. More recently, Jupyter Notebooks have made an improvement in interactive data science. Describe how Jupyter Notebooks have changed the data science workflows within an enterprise. Well, I think it's basically also aided, I mean, I think Python benefits a lot from the improvements in Jupyter, right? Because now most data scientists are trained in Python, which means that when companies hire data scientists, they're probably Python first. It helps that uh, people who got trained in Python can use somewhat similar tools when they get to companies. And, you know, I mean, I think that for people who got trained using Jupyter Notebooks, the fact that you can uh, have your visualizations in there, your code and your documentation is really beneficial. So the question is, is that how ultimately people will productionize these things, right? So, And it seems like uh, people are trying to think through uh, what, are, what would be the workflow to streamline prototype to production and what would the role of uh, notebooks be in that world. And I think that uh, over time, maybe that will blur a little bit just because people want, uh, companies want tools that will allow them to act fast, right? So you don't want to write a complicated data pipeline in a notebook only to have to hand it to the production team who has to rewrite it into <laughs> something else, right? On the other hand, I am somewhat not sure the whole notion that the data scientists can just push a button and deploy to production. I don't know that's going to happen. Why not? Well, because, I mean, there's all sorts of regulatory reasons why you want to make sure that something is up to snuff, right? So in the financial services sector, they have well-laid-out uh, organizational structures for uh, compliance and things. I mean, even predating machine learning, just statistical models, they'd have people who would review the source code, people would test it. Yeah, make sure it's not touching data that's not supposed to and so on and so forth. So I guess if you can automate all of these tests, make sure that everything is up to snuff, then maybe it's possible. But I don't know if we're going to get there soon. Right. So, and also, who's ultimately responsible if, if after you deploy a model, it starts misbehaving? Who's going to wear the proverbial pager? Huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, some kind of ops and, and, and uh, production team will be responsible. So then, if that's the case, then they want to know, what is it that we're putting out there? <laughs> yeah, it's the old throwing it over the wall problem. You know, I mean, you can automate, maybe you can automate some of the tests and, and things like that, but uh, you're probably still going to have a dedicated team to make sure that uh, everything is ready. And also, I mean, which also brings me to something I've, I've given talks about over the last two years, which is the whole notion of managing risks in ML, right? Because... Uh, I mean, the other way to frame it is responsible AI, but I, I like managing risk because some companies already have risk management uh, teams and risk officers, so it's well understood. So what goes into this pile? Well, safety and reliability, privacy and security, fairness and bias, explainability, 
right? So you have to make sure that depending on your use case, that you have to make sure that these are all accounted for, which at this point in time, I think that means actually even having cross-disciplinary teams, right? So because if we're early on in this age of privacy-preserving ML, but right now uh, the tools still require some level of expertise in computer security topics like encryption and cryptography and things like that, so which are not topics that a data scientist knows about or, frankly, would even want to read about. <laughs> and so, so you would have to set up teams that can work across these different functions, right? So which means your end-to-end platform should probably appeal to different personas, not just data people. Hmm. I mean, if you're at Netflix and you're rolling out a new recommendation system for movies, you can kind of Probably. ignore a lot of these questions. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. But for the companies you've talked to, financial services, Healthcare. offering loans, maybe yeah. mapping software, stuff that's like super mission critical. Healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah, yeah. What are people doing? Are they actually, are they even rolling out machine learning models or are they just kind of too afraid to? No, no, they are. They but, are. But they, they still have more processes in place than... Uh, I mean, what, is, what does that look like? What do those processes look so like? So I think the emerging term that people are using is model governance. They have basically that function for model governance to make sure that the machine has been tested, validated, that it's in compliance with whatever regulations that need to be accounted for. And that reproducibility is important for many of these domains because if something goes wrong, they may have to explain to their regulator what happened. So a lot of those have to be in place. So it's not as simple as just rolling out a recommendation engine, which if things don't work out, then it's you, the company, that suffers, right? So not your user, right? right? So And so this governance team, does it look like an like old-school QA process so in the governance teams there's also people from compliance but yeah so there will be the equivalent of teams who are dedicated and model validators and testers Mm. probably Mm. and uh, you know i mean i think for most people the best practice there is to separate that from the people who built the model let someone else test and validate a model in the early days of hadoop there was this common problem where you have a business analyst and the business analyst goes to the Hadoop team and says, hey, I've got this query. Can you go run it for me? And then it takes like five days and then they get their answer back. And these lines of requests will build up for the Hadoop engineers. And there was this dream of self-serve data science or self-serve analytics for the business analyst. And there was all these tools like Tableau and Looker and things like that. Have we reached a point where we have self-serve data science or self-serve business analytics? How much have things improved since the early Hadoop days? I think they've improved quite a bit. But if you're asking if, you know, because the analysts who are doing the things that you described Assuming that the data is ready to go, I mean, uh, we have the tools for them to to start doing interactive analysis, right? But the question is if there's some data munging and preparation involved. So some of these tools have also incorporated that capability. That also still uh, goes back to that earlier 
the new data management paradigm I described, which is uh, if you still require that people make a copy, get it out of the data lake, put it in a schema, then of course you still need IT for that, right? So most analysts won't be able to do that. But if the data is sufficiently ready to go with minor data wrangling involved, I think uh, we're starting to have tools. I think the area I'm excited about, which is quite early, is the use of ML for visual discovery, right? So intelligent visual discovery. The idea here is if you have so much data fields and columns and you don't even know what chart to draw, right? So we're starting to see researchers and tool builders build tools so that, uh, you know, maybe you get the presentation of the charts and things that you need to keep track of rather than you having to spend hours and hours. So, for example, if you're a marketing analyst and you want to understand what's driving churn, well, maybe you unload all of the data in Tableau or, or Looker or whatever tool, but there might be, I don't know, like uh, 250 columns, <laughs> you know? So it right, could, take, right, you, it right, could right. take you a while. So what if you just use ML to, to mm. wade through that quickly? And so we're starting to see efforts around these, uh, around these lines. Hmm. As you mentioned, you are doing a lot of media at this point. You're... Not a lot, man. But not on. a lot, okay. One, uh, uh, one podcast a week that I do uh, on the side. Po- I mean. Podcast plus newsletter, the data exchange. Explain what you're trying to accomplish with the data exchange. What are the areas that you're wanting to explore? So it's uh, my, the same areas that I explored in the O'Reilly Data Show, data, machine learning, and AI. Basically, the idea here is to ultimately provide resources so that people can make decisions around these three topics. So right now, uh, my collabor- collaborator, Mickey O'Bron, and I are starting with the podcast, but over time, who knows, we might add, add other things. And what's your perspective on how software and media is going to change in the next five years? I mean, you spent 10 years at O'Reilly, now you're embarking on your own goals. What changes do you think are coming soon? You know, I mean, I think that podcasts are are going to be important, I think, more so than people realize, I think. Hmm. Part of it is just people have these mobile devices, right? So so, so the consumption patterns will change, right? So newsletters and podcasts are going to be more important. So curation is going to be important because we're drowning in information. And I think that the role of social media, I don't have a, I don't have a good feel for how that's going to play out because... I think the platforms obviously are under the gun right now for uh, what happened in 2016. So who knows how that will affect the way media is virally spread over time. So you think podcasting is a durable format? Yeah, for someone like me who doesn't have to uh, feed myself using a podcast. Yes, but... But, you know, I mean, uh, Jeff, you would know this better. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, media companies, most of them are doing podcasts, right? So, uh, talk, uh, well, Most of them pivoted to video five years ago. Yeah, but I think podcasts are much more realistic hmm. because uh, you can consume it while you're driving, while you're doing other things, multitask. Video, you have to actually watch, right? But, you know, I mean, as someone who spent uh, many, many years chairing conferences... Uh, 
I can tell you with a podcast, you can reach probably more people than you would if you spoke at a conference. That's music to my ears. Just be a guest on Jeff and my podcast. (laughs) Indeed. So getting back to machine learning, how has AlphaGo affected the world of machine learning? How has AlphaGo? I mean, I think it raised awareness about reinforcement learning is my answer. I mean, I think obviously it got people excited about the potential of, of systems being able to learn by itself, right? So to some extent, but I think as far as specific tools and techniques, I think it RL is the one that uh, that benefited, right? So Is reinforcement learning more difficult to implement than supervised learning? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have a post coming up, I think any scale, We'll publish it about RL in the enterprise, right? So there, I'm not saying that RL is without problems, including it's more challenging than supervised learning. But in the post, I cite two major areas where companies have revealed that they're using RL. The, f- the first one is recommenders and personalization. In the post, I think I, I listed four companies, Netflix, YouTube, JD.com, and uh, Facebook who have revealed that that they're using RL as one of the things that are part of their recommenders or personalization systems, right? So it's not like they threw everything out. They're adding RL. So the challenge there is that uh, while these companies have either published papers, given talks, or in some cases even published source code, there's still no tutorials and detailed how-tos for how to do this on your own. Mm-hmm. But I think that's going to come. And then the other area that is probably less familiar to your listeners and data scientists is this area called simulation modeling. Turns out there's a lot of software that the companies now use for to model different scenarios, right? So your factory floor, your retail store, your right. logistics supply chain. Now, if you look at this software... Some of it even has a 2D modeling that looks like a game. So once you see this software, you realize right away, oh, I get it. I see why uh, reinforcement learning might play a role in this setting. And so now we're starting to see some of these software providers of simulation modeling work with RL companies. So there's a startup here in San Francisco called PatMind, which basically took Ray RL Lib and is using RL Lib and integrating that into some of these more uh, well-known simulation software. And which allows the simulation software vendor then to, to run more complicated scenarios using reinforcement learning. And their users won't even have to know that uh, reinforcement learning is happening in the background. Actually, you know, I just was thinking about the self-driving car discussion earlier. I remember there's this big Atlantic piece a while ago about Waymo, and so much of what they discussed in that piece was about the fact that Waymo has all this infrastructure around simulation, and they do these large-scale simulations that are based off of real-world driving so that they can simulate a lot of iterations at a fast pace. But my understanding is that simulation also fits into on-the-fly decision-making because basically, in many cases, these models, they're interacting with real-world situations. And this comes back to the, also the C++ Ray implementation because 
you have a situation where maybe a drone needs to make a decision about where to go. And if it can simulate the future on the fly really, really quickly, then it can make a more educated decision. Yeah. I mean, so as I noted, so there's two main buckets that I think RL might start appearing in the enterprise, right? So simulation modeling and then recommenders and personalization. And they share a couple of things. First is maybe the reason you might use RL instead of supervise in these settings. One, maybe you can't get labeled data or labeled data is, is expensive. And then secondly, there are certain applications where it's not like a singular moment and then someone decided to churn, right? It may be a sequence of events. So it's almost like a, you have this notion of memory. And that's where reinforcement learning excels is in the sequential decision-making, right? And then a bunch of little things happen on the website and then boom, someone decides to to churn or whatever, mm. right? So there's no label data that you can get for that kind of thing. Because it's not like you can say, I label the reason this person churn is because of this event. Well, no, it might have been based on a sequence of things, right? So by the way... Uh, there's one more topic I think your listeners might be interested in sure. that uh, I wanted to talk to you about, which yeah. is uh, this whole area of machine-aided programming. I don't know if you... So it's the use of machine learning to help programmers. Oh, I hadn't heard of an application of this any time so, so the couple oh, of areas... called Kite. I remember Kite a while ago. So a couple like of this. areas, right? So one, program synthesis. So the Ray Project has uh, worked with another group in Berkeley, and they've developed tools around program synthesis. So the first manifestation is this tool called Autopandas. So imagine a data scientist has many, many APIs that they have to keep track of, right? So one of those APIs is Pandas. What Autopandas does is the following, right? So here's my starting data frame. Here's what I want it to look like. Autopandas will write automatically the pandas code to go from input data frame to output data frame, the most efficient pandas code. So the idea here is that that same technique can be applied to a bunch of other APIs that a data scientist might be interested in. So you can imagine in the future, a data scientist may not need to know the details of every single tool that they need to use, right? Because the pandas API, I don't know, has hundreds of functions, right? Hmm. And so then uh, programming becomes more like, uh, I want to write this program. I know I have this 20 JavaScript frameworks that are Hmm. involved, but now I have uh, these tools that can help me. So that's one manifestation. And then then there's other kind of more... uh, Real quick, have there been any practical applications of program synthesis? So Autopandas is the first one that I've seen that uh, might looks promising because basically a, a lot of people use Pandas, right? So. Right, but this is still pretty much in very nascent stages, right? There's not people actually like deploying it and using it at companies. Not yet, okay. not yet, yeah, yeah. But the combination of deep learning and Ray uh, allows mm. them to be able to do it uh, yeah. uh, for Pandas. So I believe they can do it for other APIs. So the other areas where machine-aided programming is beginning to appear is auto-completion, right? So 
this hasn't happened yet, but uh, you mean in the like in the uh, what is it called? Like a your uh, your ID. ID, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And then the and then uh, what they want to do is basically use some ML techniques to analyze code repos and see hmm. uh, see what kinds of tools come out of because uh, now we have all these n- new natural language uh, models, right? So so they want to see if some of that can be used to develop tools for programmers. So it's, I think it's... Uh, that seems plausible. I think it's, uh, an, it's an exciting area, and it could change the nature of programming. Hmm. Totally. I mean, that's a great way to avoid a lot of syntax errors. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, also, if you can imagine, uh, like I said, right? So if you're a web developer, you have, this, whatever, 50 JavaScript frameworks that you have to keep track of. And now suddenly you may not need to keep track of them at all in too much detail. Yeah. Yeah. That's somewhat future looking, but since this is software engineering daily. Totally. <laughs> Any other domains that are that are on your mind? I mean, I've, I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and like one of the episodes I, I really liked was one where you just explored the kinds of trends that you were looking forward to in, in 2020. There's, you know, further exploration of some of these things and in that episode. But yeah. is, there, is there anything else that's on your mind? Just generally, I mean, I think that there's still a lot of innovation that's happening at the moment, right? So for, across the entire uh, data pipeline, including this new data ma- management pri- paradigm that I uh, described. Because I think for the most part, the only things that get written about these days are ML, right? So in the popular media, right? <laughs> right. But as you know, the, a lot of the actual uh, challenges are in infra that's and, right. and data engineering. That's yeah. right, yeah. And just a few more questions on the issues and, and uh, ecosystem. Do you have a sense of how the PyTorch community compares to the TensorFlow community? Ah, so I think that in the research world, PyTorch is ascendant. In the enterprise, I think uh, TensorFlow still has a lot more users just because it came out earlier and there's a lot more enterprise software vendors that rallied around it. But who knows? That may change, right? So just like, uh, you know, I mean, who would have imagined that Python in the enterprise would be this (laughs) popular, right? So, I mean, I think if people are doing research with PyTorch, that tells me that the professors are using PyTorch, which means the classes are being taught in PyTorch or more of them. It's not like no one is uh, doing research or teaching in TensorFlow. It's just a matter of time then that enterprise tools for PyTorch become better, maybe not completely on par with TensorFlow because TensorFlow will always have Google and Google Cloud. And so I think that we'll see more and more people use PyTorch. And, you know, I mean, for the most part now, if you talk to any enterprise software vendor in ML, they make a point of mentioning PyTorch, right? So they'll, they'll say, yeah, we support a TensorFlow and PyTorch. So they're checking that box now. So now the question is, are the tools they're building for PyTorch on par with TensorFlow? If you were running a cloud provider, would you put any restriction on the use of facial recognition APIs? He, I think there's still a lot of discussion. So yes, for the moment, yeah, mm. I, would, I would, right? So uh, there's still a lot of discussion about the applications of facial recognition. I mean, I think there's a New York Times article that came out recently of mm. a startup. That, I saw that, yeah. That uh, is working mostly with law enforcement, but that's 
I mean, once you're selling to law enforcement, what prevents you from selling to anyone, right? So, so in the West in particular, I think uh, there's going to be a lot of pushback with facial recognition. Look, I mean, we just went through GDPR and CCPA. Right. So, and then you think that facial recognition can just deploy willy-nilly <laughs> in mass? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Except for face ID. So, I mean, you can imagine. So if, if it's a facial recognition, but you are trying to comply with GDPR, does that mean if I send you an email saying scrub me from your facial database, mm. you will be able to execute a MapReduce or Spark job to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly wouldn't want to have to answer that question. Yeah. You visited Israel recently. How oh, yeah. We- yeah, I go there every year. Yeah. How do Israeli software engineers think different than American software engineers? I don't know if it's different, but they're scrappy because uh, the population of the country is small. I think it's 9 million. So they know that if you're doing a startup in Israel, you know that you need to target the U.S. market right away. And so they're just scrappier that way. And also, I think the community smaller, so people tend to know each other so the degrees of separation is quite low and but they are also helpful to each other and as you know probably uh, just uh, tradition in science and math is just perfect for this age of data and machine learning last question if you had to start a company in the data infrastructure space today what company would you start what company would i start i don't know i mean uh, if i knew I would probably start it. No, I actually, uh, yeah, I have some ideas, but uh, I mean, I think I would probably be more vertical focused. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the challenge, of course, with the vertical is that if you go all in on the vertical and it's wrong, that's one challenge. And number two, you have to find a vertical you actually have passion about because it's hard to... Startups are hard enough. Totally. If you're not, let's say you decide I want to build something in sports and you really don't like sports, that's going to be a hard slog. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what company would I start? I don't know, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think RL would be interesting, but it's early. Right. So in terms of explaining it to enterprise, you have to hide it, just like the simulations modeling software will ultimately have RL and you may not even know. Ben Lorca, thanks for coming back on. It's been great talking. Thank you. 